Hello and welcome to the Horrible Health History Podcast. This is a health podcast for history buffs. So I'm Anna, I'm a biology student with a bit of an interest in the history of medicine and all the weird and wonderful and wacky things that went on. And I have a special guest today, Juliet. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, uh, I'm Juliet. I'm an engineering student and I also study science, but very much not biology. Not biology. <laughs> not biology. We did do a bio course together A single last year. bio course, yeah. which is the entirety of my knowledge. Yeah, <laughs> it was fun though. She ventured out of her comfort zone and did biology I did. with me. I still don't know what mitosis is though. So that's that's where I'm at. Yeah, that's all right. So I have a very special story about you. I tried really hard not to tell you about you this. You didn't tell me, but I'm very excited because you yeah. said it would be scandalous. I'm expecting scandal. It's just spicy, I think. So I'll break the secret now. So this podcast is based on a book published by this author, Rebecca Skloot, called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Mm-hmm. And I read it, what was it, a couple years ago I read it, and it was interesting. It's a nonfiction book. It's basically the reporter went to Virginia to look into a story and the family of a woman named Henrietta Lacks. Mm-hmm. And... Basically what happened is Henrietta Lacks was a woman whose cells became the first ever immortal cell culture. Well, they, they were her cells? Her cells. Her cells. Basically, these cells are called HeLa. Mm-hmm. So anyone in biology, most people in biology are pretty familiar with HeLa cells. They're everywhere. These cells in particular had a huge impact in science. They were used to test the polio vaccine, they were used for countless research into cancer, into AIDS, into the effect of radiation, toxic substances, gene mapping. Apparently they were even used to test the effect of working in a sewer. Wow. So a lot of a lot of medical a lot of medical things. A lot of medical things. They were sent into space to see what would happen. Like before they sent humans up. They were right. like, we want to see if zero gravity. They sent died. cells. Yeah. That's interesting. They did everything. And so The book in particular focuses on the woman whose these cells were taken from, the history of the cells, but more importantly, it focuses on the history of her family Mm -hmm. because obviously she she died of this cancer that the cells were taken from and her family basically had to, I guess, they've dealt with the aftermath of that. So a bit of scale, I guess, to... Oh, how much they've been used. If you piled all HeLa cells onto a scale, they would weigh more than 50 million metric tons. Wow. So so these are like duplicates. You duplicate Yeah, they, the so they original. grew them. Yeah. They grew them. Kind of like like breeding lab mice. Yeah. But yeah. cells, like yeah. growing bacteria. They just grow, they grow and grow and grow. So they've 50 mil, million metric tons of HeLa cells. And if you'd laid all the HeLa cells ever grown end to end, they'd wrap around the earth at least three times. That's pretty big. That's that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So they'd wrap around the earth at least three times and they would span more than 350 million feet. That's crazy because cells are teeny, teeny, teeny. Exactly. They're tiny. And the irony behind this is 
at her tallest, mm-hmm. Henrietta Lacks was only a bit over five feet tall. Right. She was a small Right, woman. right, yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about Henrietta's life. Mm-hmm. So her mother died during childbirth in 1924 mm-hmm. and her father moved with his ten children to Clover, Virginia. She grew up in a poor African-American family in the South. She was raised by her grandfather because her and her ten siblings were split among relatives there, yeah. so his father could deal with it, I guess. And she lived with her cousin David, known as Day. Mm-hmm. Henrietta and her cousin David ended up marrying. Crazy yeah, so times. she yeah back then we loved the incest, <laughs> but it was reasonably normal back then. Yeah, yeah. Um, she she worked as a tobacco farmer. Mm-hmm. I don't quite know how long she worked as a tobacco farmer for, but she was she wasn't particularly skilled. She didn't have much education. Yeah, just you know. So her and Day, after they married, moved to Maryland so Day could work in the steel mill, which had a really high demand because of World War One. Then they moved to an area known as Turner Station, where many of the poor African-American steel workers lived. She, she knew that something was wrong before she was diagnosed with cancer mm-hmm. because she's re- they recount before her fifth pregnancy she'd complained of a, a knot inside of her she could tell something was wrong and she'd even noticed a lump on her cervix several months after giving birth but for some reason it wasn't actually dying like they didn't notice it during the birth itself and she didn't have health insurance so she headed off to Johns Hopkins Mm -hmm. and it was one of the only hospitals in the area that treated poor African Americans without them having to pay but there was a trade-off to this, mm-hmm. which was that, unfortunately, a lot of these African-Americans were used um, for medical research or experimentation. There was not as much, I guess, respect given to yeah. these patients yeah. as there were to paying white patients. In And this is in 1951, by the way. So in 1951, she visited gynecologist Dr. Howard Jones and she complained of vaginal bleeding, so he gave her an examination, and he discovered a large malignant tumour on her cervix. Right. And this is described in detail. They talk about it being purple. Weird comments about it being quite soft. Quite soft. Quite soft, yeah. And so she rece- received radium treatments at the time, which is the best treatment available. Mm-hmm. And this involves stitching a small glass tube of radioactive metal secured in flat fabric to her cervix. So basically what happened is the surgeon cut out the tumour and then just to make sure there was none left, put these little glass glass tubes. During the removal of the tumour, they took a biopsy. Yeah. And this is the important part. They didn't tell her that they were taking a biopsy. Right. And she, as I said, wasn't particularly medically literate or scientifically literate. She wouldn't have known. She wouldn't have known. That they that this could have happened. They, yeah. She wouldn't have known what they were doing with her tumour. They were just told, oh, we'll make you better. Mm-hmm. Oh, we'll try to. They didn't actually succeed. But the biopsy was taken and it was sent to a Dr. George Gay. This is important. G-E-Y, Dr. George Gay. Mm-hmm. Dr. Gay was a prominent cancer and virus researcher and he'd been collecting cells from all cervical cancer patients that came to Johns Hopkins Hospital. He hadn't had much success so far because each sample had died pretty quickly after a few days. Yeah. He was uh, just after, after an immortal cell, basically. And so he was collecting 
cell culture because they'd never they'd been able to culture bacteria Mm -hmm. they'd be able to culture fungus and grow these things but they'd never been able to culture cells human cells that is and it was a problem in science because still cells die quickly and you can't really test on a cell when it's dying Mm -hmm. so was there a reason they decided to take cancer cells Instead of any other cells. Good question. <laughs> Good so question. cancer cancer cells basically can divide uncontrollably. Yeah. yeah. So our cells aren't dividing all the time and a lot of cells aren't actually I know we talk about cells undergoing mitosis, yeah. but a lot of cells aren't actually in that stage. They yeah. kind of just sit dormant. And so if you cut those cells out and put them on tissue with without any kind of sustenance and hormones yeah, and information, die. they'll, they'll die. die. Whereas cancer cells, the mutations that make them so dangerous mm-hmm. is the mutations that make them great for cell culture. Yeah. They'll yeah. keep going, but I still, depending on the mutation, they may not yeah. grow properly. Yeah. Yeah. But These ones did. These ones did, yeah, exactly. They had the right mutation, they were immortal. They didn't die and they kept dividing very fast. It was an incredibly aggressive cancer. So after receiving the biopsy... His assistant, thinking they would die like all other cells, took her lunch break before plating mm-hmm. them. So before preparing them and giving, putting them on medium, she just she was like, oh, I'll leave it for now. They're going to die anyway. So she left it. She had her lunch. And then she came back, plated them. And they were still alive. She, yeah. Well, yeah. she left them for 24 hours. When she came back, they were still alive. Mm-hmm. So she, she divided them, put them on two plates and left them again. And they kept dividing. And eventually she was just constantly divide like dividing up these cells and they kind of realized pretty quickly that they'd found potential cell culture so these cells could be divided indefinitely they could be frozen for decades and they could be used for experiments Mm -hmm. which is very important and he labeled them HeLa, so capital h lowercase e capital l a HeLa after the first two letters from henrietta lax's name right so that's the name of these cells remained as healer to this day yeah he didn't but he didn't write down henrietta lax's name because the anonymity anonymity the anonymity of the patient was important then but it wasn't they weren't quite thinking about it so he kind of wrote it healer down wasn't her identity but when members of the press got close to working out her name he made up a pseudonym helen lane to protect her identity but it also this also worked against the family because no one knew actually knew who these cells came, came from. from. Yeah. Important for protecting her privacy, but at the same time, as we find out later, it was a big industry. Mm. There was a lot of money to be yeah. made from it. And she herself didn't know that. She didn't know. So she died that year. She died in October 1951 at the age of 31, mm-hmm. leaving behind, I think it was five children Yeah. after that. And most of them were infants. Right. So, so I have a funny date here. So one year after they were taken out of Henrietta and mm-hmm. put into a cell culture, HeLa cells were the first living cells to be shipped via postal mail. Oh. Yeah, hadn't done it before. That's an interesting fact. Yeah, and I think that year the Tuskegee Institute opens the first HeLa factory supplying cells to laboratories and researchers and it was operating as a non-profit but within a few years a company named the microbiological associates started selling HeLa for profit so this was a factory dedicated entirely to, to this one cell to culture. growing HeLa because they hadn't right. they didn't have anything yeah, else at yeah, the time yeah. this was the one the first the first and very quickly only a year mm-hmm. after they discovered these cells 
were they making it factories? They were selling it off. They were passing it on to other scientists. Yeah. It was it was it very quickly went around the world. And according to Rebecca Scoot, the author of the book, more than sixty thousand scientific articles had been published about research done on Gila, and mm. that number was increasing steadily at a rate a rate of more than three hundred papers each month. That's crazy. So clearly, a lot of people were waiting on yeah. some sort of cell culture to be able to yeah. do their research. Yeah. So, I mean, it, everything yeah. is done using Gila, even now. So, I have a list of things, of ways Gila was used. So, in 1952, a year after Henrietta died, it was essential in developing the polio vaccine. Mm-hmm. In 1953, Gila cells were the first cells ever cloned. In the 1960s, they went up to space missions to see what the cells would do in zero gravity. In 1965, HeLa cells were fused with mouse cells to make the first ever human hybrid cells. They were used for gene mapping, in virtual fertilization, like AIDS research, so many things. And until it was until the 70s, they, they were used for everything. In the 70s, they realized something. Basically, they realized that HeLa cells had contaminated other cultures and they didn't know about this until the 70s. It is so aggressive. It's dustborne. Dustborne? Yes. These cells can survive can on survive. Dust, uh, dust particles, float on dust particles and contaminate other things. Right. It's like an aggressive like a bacteria or something. Yeah, so they're contaminating other, other research, other so experiments. So people were using like this, oh, this is my pancreatic pancreatic cell culture they thought it was from pancreas and in the 70s they realized actually these are healer cells and we don't know they've at some point they've been contaminated and so what started then was a race to identify healer cells Mm -hmm. so you because they all look like i don't know mushy blobs on culture they needed a way to tell healer cells apart from other cells and so what they did is they found, basically found out the identity of Gila, who who was Gila, and they found Henrietta Lacks. Henrietta's husband, Day, was called by a scientist and what he they wanted was basically the family's DNA so they could identify genetic markers right, yeah. of Gila so that they could work out what was Gila cells yeah. and what wasn't. But there was a problem, and then that was Henrietta's husband had a third grade education, and he didn't even know what a cell was. Mm-hmm. This was the first time they'd ever heard of HeLa cells. Despite the fact that they came they, from... They were a massive industry. They yeah. were using everything, and the family didn't know until yeah. this phone call in the 1970s. And what he understood from the phone call was akin to basically, he heard, we've got your wife. She's alive in a laboratory. We've been doing research for on her for the fast, past 25 years. And now we want to test your kids to see if they have cancer. That was his understanding of the yeah. conversation. And that wasn't what the researchers said. But scientists didn't... They didn't know anything about this family. And they didn't take the time to learn about them. Mm. And from this point on, the family was sucked into this world of research they didn't understand. And... In some ways, the cells took over their lives. Yeah. So the family were asked for blood samples and they didn't understand why and they didn't really know, I guess, what HeLa cells, how they had this connection to Henrietta. Yeah. Who, where was Henrietta? Was she dead? Was she alive? They had no idea. 
And yeah, so they, for 25 years, they, they thought that their, as far as they knew, their mother had been used in an experiment. And so one of the problems that Re- Rebecca Skloot came, came across when she, in the 2000s, was trying to research for her book is that the family had a big distrust of scientists. Mm-hmm. They didn't, they had, no one from the scientific community had sat down with the family and really said, explained to them. Explained to them in a way that yeah. would be accessible. Yeah, exactly. And so it took a year for Rebecca Skloot to gain the trust of Deborah, mm-hmm. who was Henrietta's daughter. A whole year. And even then it was a bit touch and go. So I want to talk a bit about the ethics yeah. What happened? The questionable nature, like yeah. why taking cells without a patient's consent, I imagine, is a yes. pretty big ethical issue. It is. So in 1951, cells were taken out of Henrietta. She wasn't told. No consent was given, and even if consent was given, it probably couldn't have been informed consent. Definitely not, considering they had no idea how far these cells would go and what they'd be yeah. used for. Yeah, she didn't. She didn't know. She probably wouldn't know what a cell was. Um. So. What I thought was interesting is the cells were taken from Henrietta in 1951, but in 1947, four years before she died, the Nuremberg Code was established, which was a set of ethical standards for human experimentation, which was produced as a result of a trial against the Nazi doctors involved in the Nazi experiments. There was starting to be an ethical standard in 1951, but unfortunately it wasn't around Henrietta until this day some people argue that because their cells taken from her body they don't contain any of her soul Mm -hmm. she's not alive it's just her cells she doesn't there's no right over them yeah but we'll talk about like I guess what happened later about that kind of legal issue um but there are some more ethical concerns that come up later so in 1954 a man named Chester Subham begins to conduct experiments without patients' consent to see whether or not injections of HeLa could cause cancer. Right, so injecting it into other yeah, people. Seeing, yeah, seeing if cancer was contagious, basically. And then right. in 1957, this little timeline of kind of ethics mm-hmm. around yeah. this, 1957 was the first time informed consent ever appeared in court documents. So we're starting to get a kind of, I guess, picture. Mm-hmm. Then, obviously, we talked about in 1970s, the Lax family's blood samples yeah, were yeah. used to create... Identify. Genetic, identify, yeah. to identify genetic markers that could be used on the HeLa cells. Um, and then another F... So that's, like, kind of a timeline, I guess. We'll talk about... Oh, in 1985, they published Henrietta's medical records... Without her family's knowledge without of consent. Her fo- yeah. And the problem right. with this is the whole world now knows this family's medical history yes. and their mother's medical history. She couldn't consent to it yeah. and they didn't either. And it gets worse. So in 2013, a scientist contacted Skloot. So this is after she's published her book. So this is beyond the timeline of the book. Mm-hmm. They contact Skloot and they tell her that the HeLa cell genome was published open, openly. So they're like, oh, listen to this amazing thing we've done. The HeLa cell genome, so every single piece of information on Henrietta's whole DNA is now publicly, publicly open. Available. Yeah. 
And this, the problem with this is that now essentially 50, 50% of her kid's genome is on there. And this means that the genome of her kids was about public and research. Mm-hmm. So the genome contains information like the percentage chance of bipolar disorder, the chance of Alzheimer's, and it was a massive privacy violation. Yeah. And the family felt like it was her medical records being published a lot online again. And it essentially was. Mm-hmm. And after being contacted, so Rebecca Scoot rang the scientist back and said, take it down immediately. She told the family and then they said, take it down immediately. So this was published in the, in the recent, recent past. Yeah, 2013. Without any of her family's consent. Yeah, and they still haven't, before this, they still hadn't made any, mm-hmm. they didn't have any money from this or anything. They were... I guess, still being used kind of as, as scientific experiments or they were along for the ride, I guess. And Skloot helped organise the Lacks family to have a meeting at Johns Hopkins to basically talk about what to do next. Mm-hmm. And there were three options. One was to completely take it down and never make it available. Number two was to leave it up and make it available to everyone publicly and the third option, which was the option they ended up taking, was that they would form a committee and they could the family and a bunch of scientists could decide who could and couldn't have access. So right. it would be controlled access to the genome. And so to this day, two members of the Lacks family are part of the National Institute of Health's HeLa Genome Data Access Working Group. Yeah. Right. So this it, the genome can be used is being used for Yeah, it's still research. it's still being used yeah. for research, but you have to apply to use Seek it. Seek approval from, from the family. And I thought it just it makes me so angry mm. this story because to this day a lot of her family don't have medical insurance. Yeah. They're uneducated. Many of them are quite poor. I think one of her own grandsons is is living on the street in Baltimore and they've never been financially compensated no. this is a huge industry yeah and the money i mean where we're sitting right now on the australian national university 100 meters away there are probably fridges full of these cells and there's never been any any compensation yeah to the family. family even in in a sense that it was originally taken without her consent so there's been no legal no monetary compensation either no there's there, I, I think yeah there hasn't really been much at all mm. and I understand that like tissue samples they are scientific tools but I think the lessons we can learn from this is while animals and cells are tools scientists really do need to consider that they came from somewhere yeah it, it's I feel like it's, it's shocking to me that you know, I think it's easy for us now to think, well, that happened back in the 70s and it was a different mm. time. But hearing that her genome was published in the 2011, was it? That's 13, yeah. 2013, that's really recent when, sh- like, surely you would expect yeah. there to be some sort of medical ethics yeah. that someone would have said, no, you can't do that. Yeah. There's, it, I think it's starting to be defined. So there was a lawsuit in, when was it? There was a lawsuit recently about a man suing a hospital for control over his own tissues Mm -hmm. and he won that law but then it was overturned by the Supreme Court saying that once tissues are removed from the body with or without consent, the 
person no longer owns them. So I think this is still like that wasn't so that was that was 1990 1988. So mm-hmm. it was a lot a while ago, but I think this kind of area of medical law is still being a developing area. Developing. Yeah. And I thought another interesting thing we can take away from this story is the importance of good science communication. Definitely. So this story wasn't really out there significantly before Scoot published this book. So mm-hmm. she'd written a few articles about it, but really it's a, it was incredible. It was a New York bestseller, incredibly successful book. And Scoot's skill in telling this story, making it scientifically accessible, making it compelling shows the effect of good science, scientific yeah. communication and science communication, even on the level that science communication would have been, uh, what was needed to explain to the family, yeah. her own family and yeah. herself, what, what the cells were being used yeah. for. And there was a lack of that there. And therefore she yeah. had no idea for what sure. was going on. If scientists understood back then, or they had some kind of like science communication training, mm. maybe things could have turned out differently, but yeah, I kind of wonder what stories are waiting to be told. It's very interesting. It is very interesting. Anyway, I'll just tell you the sources that I got this information from. So I don't actually have access to this book right now. So I use the book as my inspiration, but I got the the facts from an article by Johns Hopkins mm-hmm. about Henry Lacks, an article by the Smithsonian Magazine as well to kind of fill in the gaps of what I remember from the book. And I also use the website of The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks as well. It's a great book. I really, really recommend everybody should read it. And yeah, I'd like to thank Evangeline for making our awesome intro and outro music. And I'd like to thank Juliet for coming to join me today. Thanks for having me. It was it was an interesting story. I feel like yeah. Scandalous doesn't quite cover. I wasn't expecting Yeah. Spicy, for sure. Interesting anyway. to know a developing yeah. field yeah. of medical ethics. For sure. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. And this is the last episode for now, but potentially in the future, Juliet and I might have something started. Mm-hmm.